So this is a conversation I had with Marcelo Menzana. He lives in Catalonia and like me here in Italy uh, is on the front edge of the European experience of this pandemic that's rolling through us at the moment. And uh, this was just our first meeting, getting to know each other a little and, and sharing um, where do we come from in, in quite a philosophical sense. Like what is our, each of us uh, doing very similar work and, and we talked a lot about some of the design philosophy behind that work and, and uh, Mikhail in particular has just a huge body of knowledge about um, social theory and so on, which is um, not my strong suit. So it was really fascinating for me to hear from someone who's got much more of the uh, theory down and is now stepping into the practice side of things. So just the first conversation, really stimulating and energizing and um, hopeful that we'll get to know each other a lot more because it seems like we're doing very related stuff. Thanks for tuning in. Drop me a note on Twitter if you want to connect. I'm Rich Decibels, and uh, you can find more information about this project at the website microsolidarity.cc. Perfect. Cool. Uh, okay. Yeah, I was thinking a little bit. Uh, yeah, this uh, like this agenda for the conversation a little bit presenting ourselves. Uh, I I think that I somehow know part of your work because you are. I think you are doing really well this uh, work out, out loud kind of thing. So I can really have an image about your work, about, about uh, with which communities you are engaged. But I think I, I would also like to hear from you. Uh, so I can also present, uh, present myself or why I'm here or what I'm yeah, doing cool. here. Cool. Yeah, the, the second part of the, of the agenda was uh, I wanted to present you a little bit some of my hypotheses right Ideas about the project that I'm, that I'm engaged now in, and at the end, I would I would like to ask you a couple of questions, and maybe we can have a conversation around these these topics. I don't know; it, it sounds good to you. Sounds very good. I'm I'm delighted that you've thought about it before you arrived. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't want to take much time from you, so yeah. Okay. So yeah, um, I, I got I had like this question that I wanted to ask you, like. I know it's pretty open, but uh, how did we, in this case, you uh, got to here and to now, to this moment? So yeah. a, a little bit, which is your story? Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing that I'm paying attention to at the moment uh, with this pandemic means uh, it shapes what story I tell, right? So mm -hmm. the story that I'm telling at the moment is um, that my relationship to apocalypse. So um, I was raised in this really um, strict, old-fashioned, fundamentalist Christian church, and mm -hmm. that meant we believe in heaven and hell, and if you do the wrong things, you're going to go to hell and have infinite suffering for all time. Um, so I was raised very early on with this idea of apocalypse, you know, like that there's a, that there's a risk of an infinitely bad outcome, <clears throat> and that's really encoded in, it's a really important part of my psychology from my Christian childhood. Um, and then maybe it was the early 2000s, 2003 or four, that I left the church. Um, and in 2006, I read the report from the UN saying we're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction and humans, humans caused it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I started paying attention at that point to um, existential risk and the possibility of social collapse 
and the near-term possibility of social collapse. And when I say paying attention, it was like, you know, I was in my early 20s and I had some vague sense that things weren't right and that we were in a dangerous position as a species. But I wasn't really um, supported or equipped to deal with that knowledge or that possibility. And so I lost a lot of, um, I lost a lot of time, really. I spent um, the next five years depressed and nihilistic and not very productive or effective or engaged or happy or, you know, really just kind of lost and confused until in 2011, you know, the movement of squares showed up in New Zealand um, as in our case, it was Occupy. I know in your case, it'd probably be 15M. Um, But I got, I just kind of stumbled into that space and, and that, that Occupy camp was the first time that I ever said out loud that I carry fear with me, that I'm afraid that um, collapse is a real risk. And I don't know how big the risk is. I don't know if it's like 5% chance in my lifetime that we'll see a whole bunch of countries disintegrate, or if it's a 50% chance, or it's a one five millionth of a chance. I don't know what the, what the ratio is. I haven't got the intellectual capacity to make sense of those numbers, but um, just emotionally carrying around the possibility of existential risk and social collapse um, really incapacitated me all the way until I could start talking about it in 2011. So that was like a graduation coming out through that process of being allowed, uh, like I allowed my own fear, allowed my own extreme concerns. And, um, and through that process, um, when I stopped trying to avoid my fear and I just owned my fear, then it wasn't so, such a big deal anymore. It was just a little thing. It was just a component of my life like all the other pieces. And I've also got joy. I've got hope and I've got sadness and I've got a whole spectrum of different feelings that um, I visit from time to time when I'm, when I'm in, you know, mindful and embodied. Um, and what came through when I allowed myself to just experience the fear that I was experiencing, then I got to the other side, which was purpose. Like, oh, okay, this is frightening. Um, I don't know how big a deal it is. I'm going to do what I can to make it less likely that there's really bad suffering. You know, I'll, I'll find my piece of the puzzle to work on and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just be confident that if I'm doing my part, then at least one day when I'm an old man, I'll die happy knowing that I contributed my piece. And so that, that instinct is what led me to start Lumio with my friends from Occupy. And um, that was very much an engineering solution. You know, let's make it easier mm-hmm. for people to do collective decision-making. Quite, um, as far as a, theory of change goes it was pretty simplistic i guess just just we know a lot of groups who are trying to do collective decision making they're trying to do it online we'll provide them some technology so they can do it more easily and that should have some positive outcomes um so not like a big comprehensive class analysis or complexity Mm. theory or any of that but just like a quite a simple solution for a reasonably simple problem and then over the years of working on that um Project, I kind of got bored of technology and got much more interested in the human relationships and what was going on in our team. And, and we, after a few years, we got a team together that I felt was really extraordinary. Like the way that we were working together was really extraordinary. And so I got interested in that, that method, which, you know, you can call like self-management or 
horizontal mm. or non-hierarchical or whatever you call it. But we developed some working methods that I thought were really cool. And then uh, my partner, Nati, and I started traveling to share those methods. And, um, and then we moved to Europe. And um, in my travels here, meeting with a lot of people, um, people who, uh, how do I describe them? People that have a, a high degree of education, whether that's formal or informal education, like they understand a lot about what's happening in the world and they really have a sense of justice or um, a sense of hope for how the world could be better, a sense of purpose, like we, we need to be engaged in making the world better, those kind of people. I noticed that a lot of them um, seem to be, well, my, my projection on them anyway, I felt like they were missing something that I had um, which is this combination of belonging and uh, meaningful work, like having those two things happening at the same time. So like genuine deep community, which now during the pandemic, everyone's seeing who has community and who doesn't. Um, and then the meaningful work piece being like, do I get to spend my, like when I wake up in the, at the start of the day, do I get to put my energy towards something that feels meaningful or do I have to go to some job that I don't like and do something that feels useless um, so that I can get money to pay the rent and so on. And um, I felt from the people that I know around Europe, both of those, a lot of the people are, are really missing one or both of those things, the belonging or the, mutual, mm. uh, the meaningful work. And so that's, that's the background to my micro solidarity project is mm. uh, social methodologies for I mean, the hypothesis is that we can work out how to produce belonging in this context where people are um, hypermobile, you know, like that, that um, people only live in an in a apartment building for two years and then they move to the next city or the next um, suburb. They're crossing all over the place. They're not rooted. Um, can we develop methods of relationship that still meet those very deep belonging needs and provide yeah, deep solidarity for people that are not, um, they're not in an old, old fashioned village, you know, that they're, they're moving all over European cities. Can we still, can we still have a sense of belonging even when we're moving like that? And all of the people that I know that are doing cool social change activists, you know, make the world better kind of thing. Can we also get them paid? Is there a way that we can uh, 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 take a kind of entrepreneurship approach to making some decent money while we do something mm. meaningful so we don't have to just do it? um out of out of charity or um mm. do it as a volunteer and then burn out so that's the kind of frame that i have now for micro solidarity and then now yeah. you know, in the last couple of weeks now there's a pandemic and things have got to change because yeah. solidar solidarity has been focused on face-to-face gatherings and now mm. the world demands um how do we do meaningful relationship without um yeah. physical contact so that's kind of the next chapter that we're in now Hmm. Well, that's yeah. Fun, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, um, maybe later we can get into that, but I, I found really, really interesting, uh, actually really stimulating that in your bigger solidarity project, you were actively engaged with the economies of how this, uh, you know, how economy uh, is a um, facilitator for these things to really work on, because if, if it's just pure um, activism, then you have the other part of the, of the coin that you were commenting on, having a work, a meaningful work that it, it, it gets you also to, to have a decent life also. And that, that's, I, think, I think that's something that many people uh, are missing. Uh, and yeah, so I found really, really relevant that part. So, so really get into the, into the 
economic, uh, yeah, let's say economic part of how this sustains is itself, and how we can make it so we don't get uh, at the end precarious, you know, in the because many of us are really engaged in these kind of networks, and many of uh, many of them they also have these in the in their DNA they have this precarious kind of uh, approach to to um, yeah to to building. Um, yeah, to be in action at the end. So uh, yeah, I found it very interesting. But uh, maybe we can get later into into that part because I have a complete question about the micro solidarity project, which uh, I found very interesting. Um, yeah, I, I would be really really brief uh, into my presentation, but it's funny because you, you know you always find people uh, kind of coming from really different backgrounds, like from for example me me and you, and somehow being interested in same kind of questions or same kind of uh, yeah, situations. So uh, a little bit my my background. Um, I'm a child from the let's call it from the development of Spain. Uh, so my my parents are uh, working class families uh, who who got who got the chance to go to university. They were the 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 first in their families to go to university. So I was I was uh, raised in a left leaning kind of uh, uh, family atmosphere. Um, so I, I always have this thing, uh, you know, like, let's call it like this kind of critical uh, sense of reality in my background. But at, this, at the same time, I was completely middle class kind of mindset. You know, for example, the, the narrative in my family has always been really engaged with the successful kind of uh, build a successful career. So I don't know, I, I was always like a really good student. So, you know, like the... Like, like the easy path, uh, path was to get into engineering, so that's what what I did. Just because I I never I never uh, had the chance, or I never um, kind of confronted that narrative of success. So yeah, I got into into product engineering design. Um, I got really fed up really in the beginning, so I was really engaged with with matter in a really let's let's call it in a really um, yeah material way somehow. Um, I had the chance to, to go to Denmark to study there. So I got deep, I started to, to understand that I, I, I didn't want to, to be, uh, yeah, to put more stuff into, into the market, let's call it like this. Yeah. So I, I, I started to, to realize that there was something uh, behind all the products, uh, all the systems to, to get this matter into form and all the relational aspects of these systems. So I, I got uh, there in Denmark, I got in contact with EcoDesign, so somehow, not too much um, designing for uh, giving form to matter and the, those processes, but also thinking about the whole systems in which these products are engaged. So how, how is this relational, relational part? Um, yeah, from, from that part, I also, uh, yeah, somehow I, I evolved my practice to somehow take into account that it's not only the more systemic parts related to only to matter, but also to human factors. So that's why I got engaged more into service design, strategic design. And in that moment of my life is where I, when I met Adria, I don't know if you have ever met him uh, because uh, he's part of Holland, also the same collective as, as me. I think you know, I think you have met uh, Mercer from Holland sometime, I think. And Marcela, maybe also, maybe uh, you, 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 maybe you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, we, we founded Holland, which is a cooperative and a design collective, uh, which uh, we are engaged with design for the emerging paradigm. Uh, so somehow we are 
um, yeah, helping companies, organizations that, that want to, to do this transition towards uh, what's going to come or what needs to come. Mm. So that's why I got more engaged to, let's call it the human factors. And later on, um, engaging with uh, all the post-human condition and engaging also with spiritual factors, cultural factors, etc. more engaging to what uh, we call transition design. So how we can use design as, um, as a medium or as a key of culture of, or of, as a way of doing things or thinking things to help. Um, I used to say accelerate the transition, but I, I'm not sure it's, it's the term that I want to use anymore, but yeah, to accelerate that transition towards uh, what is needed somehow. I, I, um, I've also removed accelerate from my language. <laughs> yeah, you are moving out, out of that. Uh, just the word accelerate is, is yeah. like, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think yeah. the transition is towards um, slowness. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. You don't speed up to go slower, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, co completely. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because now all the, the whole accelerationist movement, you know, in philosophy is also taking like a lot of, lots of space. So whenever you are speaking about uh, acceleration, it, it can have many different and extremely opposite kind of uh, uh, approaches to the, to the term. So yeah, I'm also trying not to say it <laughs> that much. So the, the point is that the last year I decided well, I needed to stop. So somehow to, to, to get some time to reflect about my practice, about uh, who I am, what I want to do somehow. I got into this kind of uh, uh, like yeah crisis state, I guess, um, in which I wanted to to slow down and to have some some time for for developing new stuff and for growing. So I engaged into into what I call my open masters. Is that I decided to give myself twelve months to to do a self-directed and self-led action research project and. I was looking for like formal education and I didn't find anything that really and like somehow moved me enough. Mm -hmm. So I decided to do it myself. So mm -hmm. somehow this is like one of the meta projects which I wish, which I have been involved these past months. Like how how you can lead uh, a self-led uh, like education program. So yeah, in these past months I have been engaged in different uh, topics and readings and stuff. But uh, one of the things that have uh, also coming from a more spiritual or let's say, I don't know, trying to hear myself, um, I have been really interested into, into social systems. So I'm, I'm, I have a pretty strong background in complexity science and, and systems uh, design, but really I was more engaged into the, let's call it socio-technical part of these uh, systems. So I got really, really interested into the into the how to how this way of seeing the world could apply to social phenomena. So that's that's something that I have been uh, trying to understand the past months. Uh, read, I have been reading a lot uh, about social science, for example, that I, I didn't know a bit about philosophy and other kind of stuff. So yeah, I, I kind of have I still have these these questions uh, that I'm trying to explore. So a little bit, how do we organize or how, how have we organized uh, how social autopoiesis is disclosed? So how so somehow how um, social creation or how the social is invented somehow? I, I'm really interested into this idea of, of inventing the social. So, um, and that's a big, uh, let's say, a step apart from social science. I, I, I don't want to 
this project is not about describing realities. Mm. It's a little bit about trying to invent something. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm really stimulated by this idea. There are some researchers in social science that are also proposing this inventive practice. Uh, so how, how from the social uh, work you can really invent something new. And, and really also the questions that were like, uh, I was engaged with was also how, how we can st stimulate this self-organizing or uh, autopoiesis kind of thing. Um, and really taking into account this like swarming uh, qualities how we can can do it better because we are we are already doing a lot of stuff uh, about self-organizing but I, I also was interested in the effectiveness of, of these movements and, and also how we can be more strategic like socially in which kind of uh, political um, targets we are uh, we are deciding somehow so yeah by now I've been exploring different stuff. Uh, I've been reading a lot. I, I think I have been reading too much, maybe. Uh, I, I am a little bit concerned about that. That it's, it's been a little bit too onwards right now. So that's why I also wanted to... I am speaking with a lot of people because I, I need also to somehow to, to get into other qualities. So yeah, I've been reading a lot. Uh, or building my theoretical scaffold about uh, social learning, about social movement theory, um, about social practice theory. I have also in the in the past months uh, really, by the way, uh, inspired by 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 you and all the integralists and 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 other meta modern whatever um, uh, thinkers right now out there reading about development and psychology, um, social systems and complexity, etc. Um, I have also been engaged with, and, and, and I never know how to speak about this. I, I think you also have the same the same problem because you said like three synonyms. <laughs> but yeah, I have been engaged with decentralized direct action or deliberative spaces uh, and peoples. So yeah, decentralized organizations, uh, social movements. I have been engaged with lots of local social movements with because it's that's something that is really important to me so that my practice is really situated. Uh, and so, yeah, I've been engaged with, with local communities. And I have really been really engaged also with the anarchist collectives and the anarchist background here in Barcelona, which I find really, really inspiring. And yeah, I have also been exploring like, which is the code out there, which are the patterns and the tools available. And also, again, thinking about which is the genealogy of, of self-organizing, so which the movements have happened in the recent history and in the, in the past history about us people being organized uh, for bringing change somehow. I, I don't know if you have a, a, some questions by now or... It's, I'm, I'm so happy and with you, like I, I recognize the references and I'm so happy that you've um, put the design on the conversation to make it pretty as well. <laughs> <It's> okay. <really> <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't want to get like too deep into like the more, like let's say theoretical or model behind what I'm doing, but I, I just want to bring a couple of things which I think is relevant from how I'm approaching this understanding and inventing of the social. So basically I'm, I'm doing it, uh, I'm using two, two models to, to, for my work. One is social practice theory, and the other one is transition management theory. So I'm I'm trying to to see this uh, this challenge from these uh, two perspectives. The first one, I don't know if, if you are uh, ever heard about social practice theory. Uh, well, I, I don't. Get... There's, there's some important context for me, which is um, 
I'm really stupid in lots of ways. Like this, <laughs> I really don't understand most uh, existing theory that's been developed on all the topics that I'm interested in. I don't. I'm like, I'm very much an amateur, do-it-myself kind of person. So I'm, I'm very happy to learn from you what you've learned. Okay. From I, I, the theory. I'm, I'm, I'm also really, really stupid about that. I mean, I, I just, <laughs> I, I'm trying to, I'm diving just the surface of, of all these things, and I, 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 I neither know if I want to engage more neither. Because I, I'm, you know, I'm a designer. I'm, I'm really basic to practice. So this mm -hmm. is just me uh, engaging with theory at a really surface level. So I, I, I will explain it as I understand, which is really, uh, uh, re really easily. But yeah, uh, so social practice theory basically is like a um, body of work and theory uh, engaged with understanding social phenomena. And it, somehow I liked a lot, and which by the way is, is pretty metamodern also, because um, um, social practice theory somehow builds a bridge between those theories that are more norm-oriented. So let's, let's put it like they try to understand social phenomena from a structuralist stance. So all the structures that sustain these, uh, these social phenomena are uh, power, uh, geopolitics, whatever, are, are those that are building uh, these uh, social phenomena, and the, in the other extreme, the, um, uh, those uh, theories that put the weight into, the, into individual action and uh, all the behavioral scientist kind of stance of, of, of understanding social phenomena. And one of the things that I like about social practice theory is that somehow it stands in the middle. So it's a cultural theory, so it understands social phenomena from a cultural point of view. And it puts the, the unit of analysis not in the discourse or in the human mind or in the communication, but in the practices. So somehow all the routinized body-mind behaviors that people are engaged with in their daily lives. And we, that, that's something that is really relevant to me. Like it's, it's really a theory that is engaged with the daily life, uh, with, the, with, the, with body minds also. So it's not uh, only like, uh, like a rationalist kind of approach to understanding social phenomena, but it engages with uh, all the stuff that we engage with in our practices, all the skills that we use uh, uh, for engaging in these practices, and, and also all the imaginaries that we that we somehow we follow for engaging with these uh, practices. And from seeing this perspective of self-organizing or whatever, from this um, from this point of view, I I found different. Uh, insights, let's, let's call it. Hmm. One of them is that there's already, and here is the connection with why I wanted also to speak with you, is that because I, I have found that there is already plenty of code, of patterns, of tools, uh, and there are many of them that are really, um, they are really cool. Lumi is really cool, for example. You know, like the thing is that it already exists and it's really good and it's really well done. Uh, there's a lot of patterns, codes, tools. Um, I think that somehow I have understood that that's not the main problem. The main problem is that not, not that we don't have the tools or the code to engage with this kind of uh, social change uh, through self-organizing. Um, I have found that there's a strong uh, action point in like, let's call it in the lower part of this model. So first in the skills, so how, how, we, how do we engage uh, or practically with these tools and also the whole uh, lived experience slash phenomenology of this experience. So how do I get uh, awake or poli uh, politi politicized or whatever? And how is this experience of somehow this uh, perceptive experience of 
of uh, evolving my understanding of social phenomena, engaging with other people to change it, uh, which is my perception of agency, of attractiveness, or, or of slowness or not. So um, I have been also really engaged with all the aesthetic dimension, so the relational aesthetic dimension of these kind of movements, which I, which I think is, is one of the points that can be really, really leveraged um, mm. uh, in the kind of research that I have been doing. So yeah, so I'm, I'm, I have been really interested in, in this lower part uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of this model. And also I have been really, really interested in um, so there's a lot of uh, there's lots of practices. Let's call it in in the outskirts, you know. So not in the mainstream. And I'm really really interested into how these practices could be mainstreamed. Mm. So could be practices that anyone can engage with. And that's also why coronavirus was really interesting to me because I think somehow it's it's diluting the the membrane of what's mainstream. So now many people are engaged with remote work, for example, that maybe not, nobody thought of uh, two months ago. So I'm really interested in, in how these practices could be mainstreamed mm -hmm. and somehow how, how we could build this um, social learning so we can evolve and here's all the, the socio-psychological developmental kind of mindset. So how we could collectively um, evolve or mature in, the, in, in being ready for using more of this kind of stuff. And then, and I, I will be really brief also with this, um, I have been not, not only engaged, so the, the last model was um, engaging with the granular level, so how is aesthetics and the phenomenology of being there uh, provoking or, or, or engaging in, in change. Uh, but I have also been really interested more in the systems view, so how uh, systemically these chains are, are developing, and that's why I'm, I'm using uh, this multi-level perspective for transition management theory. Um, and so what, what I've been basically interested in is how we can help proliferate these kind of free social spaces or so these um, communities that are organizing in the outskirts and they are doing uh, weird stuff, uh, weird practices, but not only how we can proliferate these kind of, of free social spaces, but also how we can, when there's an opportunity like for example, now with coronavirus, how we can help those practices get into the mainstream. Mm. And again, at the same uh, at the same point, I'm, I have been also really interested into not only how we can help proliferate these free social spaces and make them uh, mainstream, but also how we can uh, somehow help this uh, evolution of beings in the world. So how we can socially be more evolved and and, and keep these. Let's 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 say like this conscious uh, le consciousness level uh, being more engaged with this with the situation. Yeah. So yeah. At, at the end, basically, where I am now, right now, after all these things, speaking with speaking with people, doing research, engaging with some prototypes, etc., is that um, I am really interested into not make a description of what's going on, but to really try to invent something. So um, I'm also really, also really inspired by anarchist, uh, like prefigurative kind of approach. So um, this idea of somehow creating new worlds by enacting them, uh, like in, in really small scale. So, and I'm also really interested in, in speculation as a device. Mm -hmm. So right now uh, where I am is I'm, I'm trying to use design, uh, speculative design 
as somehow as a prefiguration device uh, for building worlds. So that's right now that I think that's that's my calling. I think uh, that I, I can use that that approach of uh, speculation to design for prefiguration uh, of, of of new worlds somehow. So yeah, after all these. Uh, this is stuff, um, basically, uh, right now I'm engaged into five different uh, leverage or action points, which I am really interested in, and I will be developing. And that's something that, I, by the way, I found really inspiring about your work, because in some moment I, I read, this is my plan for the next five years of my life, something like that. And I'm really interested, also really interested into this. So how building like long-term, no. medium-long-term kind of personal plans no. uh, or agendas, so somehow I'm, I'm also really inspired by this. So I have been 12 months working on this, but I'm planning to, to make this a five-year plan somehow. So yeah, which leverage points have, have I found? Um, yeah, the first one is about sense-making. So how we can build or, or um, set up perceptive, perceptive devices. So new people are awoke and new free spaces are developed somehow. So a new free space is created when someone, with, when a collective somehow sees a new reality that, that she didn't understand or she, she was not aware of. Mm -hmm. So how we can really build these, uh, these perceptive devices so more people are engaged with more realities that are out of their um, yeah, influence circle or reality or class reality or whatever. Um, the second leverage point is building relational aesthetics uh, for overcoming the experiential flows of self-organizing, which I think I have uh, a map about some of them. And I'm really interested into how, from the aesthetic uh, point of view, we can build on, on that. And yeah, I'm also really interested into how the uh, asynchronous and synchronous collaboration can really emerge from an aesthetic point of view or experiential point of view. Um, I'm also really interested, uh, I didn't tell you, but I have a background also in theater and dance, so I'm, I'm really interested into, into how we can uh, leverage this lived experience by um, embodied ways of understanding and communicating. So bringing this uh, uh, embodiment into, and, the, and the affects into, into these change experiences. Uh, the third part, in which I think you are engaged right now with microsolidity project, is um, I think it can be helped to to emerge useful methodology for sustaining self-organization uh, spaces and processes, which I I really um, I, I really think it's it's something that is needed, and also support the spreading accumulation and access to social learning. So. Anytime a new uh, uh, community engages with a self-organizing process, they don't have to start from zero. So mm -hmm. how we can build up on already uh, accumulated knowledge uh, about this. So somehow also we can be also more uh, effective as a society in building these, these, these processes. So yeah, so th this is mainly what I've been working uh, with. And I got really like moved by the, this tweet in which you were commenting or somehow sharing the same approach. Like, oh, there's plenty of tools. I think that's not the key question right now. Is how we can elaborate uh, on these methodologies. Or, 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 so yeah, I, I have this here just a couple of questions, but I, I don't want just them to follow them just in order. It's just uh, if you have any any comment any comment about how you, what have you heard 
or I don't know. I just I, I'm just curious about about your 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 takeouts. Mm. Um, okay, my reflection. Um, I really do appreciate the design and the aesthetic, mm. the like, um, and the fact that you're doing this all in English. Um, mm. Are you always are you always working in English or are you working in Spanish as well? But both of them, yeah. In the collective, we are using Catalan, right. Spanish, and English. So, right. yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's really impressive to be able to communicate these very difficult topics. And I, I feel like I understood most of what you're saying. And, um, and, and it's hard enough for someone that's a native speaker to get that stuff right. So that's really impressive. And just the, um, I really, I think I do um, agree with your sense that aesthetics is a leverage point. Like mm -hmm. I, I spent a little bit of time with activists in Taiwan and Korea and both of those places, it felt like they had um, just in the simplest way, the aesthetics were way more attractive um, mm -hmm. in their social movements than, than what I'm familiar with in the West where it's usually antagonistic, where it's usually like um, we are the cool, bad, radical people. And um, if you like us, then you're cool. And if you don't like us, you're an asshole. And that's kind of like the visual identity and, and the, um, the posture and everything. Whereas what I saw, especially in Taiwan, was a lot of stuff that was like cartoonish and colorful and friendly and um, inviting, you know, like it just seems fun and silly and you want to join in because it's, it's got that, um, mm. yeah, very, yeah, it's just, an, it's just an inviting aesthetic. So I, I recognize that and I, and I feel like in my own work, I've been missing it to an extent. Like I have the aesthetic of, my voice. So when I'm writing, um, I'm telling stories and I'm um, putting the minimum amount of theory and the maximum amount of embodiment into the written word. And people respond to that, I think. And, um, and, it, and it, it brings me a lot of pleasure to write that way. Um, whereas writing in an abstract theoretical way, I just don't know how to do it and don't have any mm. plan of learning. Um, but beyond that, I really feel like uh, my aesthetic capabilities are really limited, you know, like I don't mm. feel like I um, can, can make, can structure my thoughts in a visual way or um, produce uh, graphics and just kind of the stylistic dimension of it. Like I, um, I haven't got that. This doesn't feel like my strong suit. And so like I've been hoping to find more people that can contribute that part um, to the puzzle. Mm. Um, there's so many pieces in here, hey? Um, it's, I guess the one that jumps out um, is it would be could be interesting to talk about um, our perception of the flaws. I think you said the the experiential flaws of self organization, mm. like what mm. basically what, in my language, like what goes wrong, like how mm, yeah, no. how there are so many people that are already trying, um, and and my experience is that they're often failing for the same reasons. Um, so there's that piece, and another piece that I think might be interesting to talk about is uh, what do you mean when you say patterns and um, and how kind of like how patterns can go wrong or like how um, maybe that's not the best way to think about it but how in my view at least um, these practices uh, structures methodologies they need to be adaptable they need to they need to be responsive to their local context mm. and so um, it's really common when people are starting out the first time they try and construct a self-organizing space 
they think, well, I know I've got some instinctive knowledge that we have to um, develop our own methodologies. Like the things that are out there in the world um, don't fit us. They, they've, they've come from a different source of values. And so we're going to have to construct something ourselves. And so I see all these people thinking that they're starting from a, from a blank canvas and um, constructing their own methodologies and, and ways of working and not really recognizing that there is no such thing as a blank canvas, that they're all learning from each mm. other. Um, and they're, therefore they're all failing for the same reasons because they're copying, they're unconsciously copying the same, same behaviors. So um, my sense of like what makes a pattern, what for me, what qualifies as a pattern is like a unit of methodology that um, can actually be replicated in different contexts safely. Mm. Um, mm. And, and there's only very few of those that I know about, whereas um, there are lots of frameworks or ways of thinking about organization or um, practices that people use that, that, that just don't replicate safely into other contexts. Yeah, I, I mean, what I, so I'm, maybe I didn't explain myself too well, but I, I, was, I, did, I was not seeing, um, or I, I was not arguing against patterns. Um, I was saying that there's many of them. So a little bit of the image would be, uh, we, have, we have collectively built a workshop full of really nice and shiny tools. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but then you have to do, I don't know, a chair, and you don't know, you don't know uh, which of the tools is the best. Yeah. Uh, and then when you take one of the tools, you really don't, you know, you end up uh, using, I don't know, the drill to hammer a nail somehow. So as there, as there are so much good stuff out there, I think we are still uh, lacking like clarity on when something can be used, how, uh, how to really build confidence on, in using the tools, mm -hmm. uh, how is this also this learning process of, of, of being engaged with more and more complex tools time by time. I don't know, this, this kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, so there's already lots of content, really good content. Yeah. Uh, I think what is uh, lacking is the experience of actually um, getting these patterns and using them uh, in the right moment, uh, the right way somehow. Yeah. And I mean, the reason that I moved um, my focus from building the Lumio tool to now Microsolidarity and my, you know, training company, the Hum, um, is because we built the tool, and I felt like, okay, I mean, there's room for improvement, but the tool is basically good. It does the thing that we wanted it to do, and anyone that's experienced, um, so, you know, any any group that's done some collective decision making and has a digital practice can basically pick up Lumio and they get it. So, okay, yeah, that's the thing that I need. But th then my curiosity was that, well, how come there's not more groups? That are doing collective decision making and have a digital practice that's mm. <laughs> like wh why are they so rare that was the mm. question that motivated mm. me to move on to the next thing you know to get away from the tools and go how mm. do it, like you would say how do you um invent these new social spaces that can construct mm. this this new um new spaces of possibility where people would know that they need lumio you know mm. that was the bit that's that kind of upstream from the from the problem that i thought we were working on yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Somehow, I was also really curious about when you know when you stated that that is those methodologies are needed. Somehow, microsolidarity is your response to that. Uh, so you are 
So somehow I was I was understanding, and this is my take about your project, and it's always always a little bit scary to do this, but somehow <laughs> I, I was understanding because solidarity project is uh, I think I have written the, that there. So so somehow like a minimum mutual aid network somehow. Yeah. Yeah. So like how you can engage with building like let's call it, let's use the startup uh, uh, jargon like like minimum uh, viable mutual aid network somehow yeah. is that what you were thinking when you were very building? much yeah yeah um, and and it borrows a lot from that startup methodology as well because it's not okay. just minimum viable it's also doing that um, the sort of lean agile lean, stuff yeah. about yeah. like. Yeah just deliver something useful today it doesn't matter if it's totally crap just make make mm. it like you know give me one tiny micro unit of value and then next mm. week make it two units and then next week make mm. it three units and um mm. and that for me that just means start right now with the people around you and do something even if that something mm. is is so simple that it's like three friends i've got it i'm, I'm going to do this on friday i've got three friends and we meet every friday morning for an hour on a call and we don't have an agenda and it's just a chance to talk with each other and, and get to know each other more and deeper, you know, like there's no big story about the ambition mm -hmm. or anything. It's just this little thing that we do that, that is providing some mutual care mm -hmm. um, and some opportunities for reflection and insight. So you just do something small. And what we've agreed is that we're going to do this 10 times. And on the 10th time, we're going to have a reflection where we look back and we go, so, what did we like? What worked, What was good about that experience and what was not so good? And do we want to do another 10 weeks? And if we do, do mm. we want to do those a bit different? Is there something we want to try that's a bit different? And so mm. there's this, um, uh, that's the agile retrospective, the scrum retrospective process, you know, like mm. just stop and reflect on what you did and make sure that the next iteration is slightly better. And, mm. and that for me is like how, um, how the appropriate patterns find their place is you mm. make sure that you're, you've created a container for reflection and innovation. And you say, hey, I would like to change how we work. I would like to change how we relate to each other. And I heard about this cool practice. I read about it in a book. Or I saw it on the podcast or whatever. And, um, and you've got a space that's in the calendar already that's part of your regular recurring practice where you can say, I want to try this new thing. And people mm. say, yes. <laughs> and, it's, and it's not like... Um, you don't have to stage a, a, a mini revolution, you know, like it's, it's, it's embedded into, into your normal way of working as you do this regular reflection and, and innovation process. So that to me, like, is the essential, uh, as far as like a, a practice that you can easily see, that's the essential one. It's like, mm. do something very simple and then reflect on it and make it slightly better next time. Mm -hmm. And I think that that process just generates so much. It's like a generator function that produces so much um, creativity and, and people will go in all sorts of different directions based, based mm -hmm. on that. There's probably also a lot underneath, you know, I said that's the easy thing that you can point to and you can see mm -hmm. this is a practice, but then there's a lot of stuff underneath that line, which is harder to see, which I think is about like the character of the people and the relationships and um, the sort of, yeah, social norms and cultures and values and all those sorts of things, which for me, I find a lot harder to articulate, um, yeah, to point my finger, I'll put a, put a signpost on and say, you should be doing this or you should, this works for people that are like that. I'm not, I'm not really sure how to address that part. Mm. Um, when I was listening to you, I was asking myself, uh, so I, somehow I understand that you have been engaged with many groups that are trying to organize themselves. 
Um, and right now you are building this superstructure of, or this methodology of microsolidarity. So if you project yourself in, I don't know, in two years, and let's say that many groups have been starting these kind of processes, uh, which kind of flaws or not going so well at moments, I think, do you think those groups will find? I mean, in your, in your experience. Yeah. Um, so before, like between Lumio and MicroSolidarity, um, my partner and I started the HUM. Mm -hmm. and, and the research question for the HUM is like, what does everyone get wrong when they try and make a decentralized organization? Mm -hmm. um, and out of that, we collected what we call our patterns for decentralized organizations. So they name all these flaws and what you can do about them. Mm -hmm. um, so they're, they're very likely to, to um, we've named, well, we changed how we order them all the time, but like there's at least 10 of them. And um, uh, probably everyone is going to hit somewhere between three and 10 of them. So it's like, um, Decision-making, do you have an explicit methodology for making decisions? Um, and if you do, do you understand that there are more than two options? Because people, um, uh, when they don't give it a lot of thought, they kind of instinctively believe that decisions are either like a top-down autocratic dictatorship or mm -hmm. they're a consensus where everyone has to be yeah. engaged and you have to do the long process. And they think it's those are the two options. And of course, there's mm -hmm. actually like, an infinity of different ways that you can do decisions and probably most groups need to to define like maybe two or five different decision mm -hmm. methods and say for this category of decision use this method and for this category use that one you know mm -hmm. um so so huge number of groups stumble on that and they mm -hmm. try and do everything by consensus and it doesn't work um or they mm -hmm. say no consensus is no good for us and so then they they have this um kind of dictatorship thing which is not very fun um, mm. another one is, uh, money. So like having to deal with money and, um, uh, it's very, very common to see, especially, especially groups that have more like radical activist types. Um, they just tend to, um, have a lot of, I think, and I'm speaking from my own experience. I include myself in this, um, mm. Uh, a lot of psychological baggage around money, which makes uh, any conversation about money really difficult and Hard, yeah, really explosive. Yeah. And so then we design, this is a common pattern, we design uh, complicated structures to avoid having uncomfortable conversations. Mm. Um, so there'll be a lot of that where people think that they have to articulate a very complex constitution, which has all of these rules and checks and balances and just really complicated. Yeah, that's one you'll see is like lots and mm. lots of complicated rules. Um, and, and this, this um, mythology that if we just wrote down the right rules, then everything would go well. Uh, we would mm. never have to have an uncomfortable conversation. Mm. You know, there, there's uh, people, people have this um, kind of imaginary wish that we could have the perfect constitution and then we're never going to ha have to have these clashes between people. Mm. Um, yeah, there's lots of them, you know, just, gen just general conflict. Like, yeah. conflict is going to happen. It's definitely going to happen. And um, how are you going to respond to it when it does? And um, I, always, I always try and uh, remind people to talk about conflict while you're in your honeymoon. You know, like when you're really happy and excited with each other, talk about hey, if, if there's a time in six months where we've got a really difficult um, dif dis disagreement and it feels like we don't love each other anymore, how do we want to deal with that? 
you know, mm. like one of the principles of our relationship when we get to that point um, and work that out while you still love each other, because otherwise you just pretend or you imagine that it's never going to happen. And then one day it happens and you don't love each other anymore. And then you're going to try and make a crisis, you know, trying to make a conflict resolution policy in a crisis. It's just, mm. it's just impossible because you don't trust each other anymore. So you can't, you can't yeah. construct that architecture. Mm. So yeah, there's lots uh, of things like that. Yeah, by the way, I have, I have read the book, so I have, I have done my homework. <laughs> so yeah, I was just really curious about which of them like, popped out in your mind, which would be right. the, the, more, the, the, the most, um, yeah. I think there's gonna, of the ones that are responding so far, I think there's gonna be um, people that have way too much theory and not enough practice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and because I tell um, an attractive story, they're going to like think, oh, if I just copy what Rich is doing, then it will work. Or mm. I need to read the same sources that Rich is reading. Or I don't mm. know. I don't know how exactly that's going. That's a, um, it's a strange position to be in, you know, to, like, to have mm. this. I'm, I'm trying to just tell my own story. I'm trying to stay within my own experience and, um, and intentionally uh, construct my story in a way that I hope it is useful to others. But I'm not. Mm. I'm really trying to avoid talking about things that I haven't seen or done, and mm. that's a really um, challenging line to walk, you know. Mm. And, and there's, um, I think there's a, a um, kind of pressure on me to produce a very nice, clean framework, and you know, to make mm. these claims about how groups are, and and um, and I'll get lots of praise and attention if I do that, but it won't it won't be accurate. <laughs> mm, yeah. and, 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 you know, like my ego wants to do that. My ego wants to um, say, look, Hey, I know everything about groups and here's the answer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You would have to fight with that, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and also if you, if you got attention also, like, you know, you have, you, you, you've got like the position to, to be able to do that. I mean, so that's, yeah, that's always hard, I guess. <laughs> I mean, and, and you watch like it's happened to a thousand other people. There's so many mm. um, people that have some kind of, um, insight into how organizations work and then mm. they become a consultant and they produce a framework and a model and it becomes private knowledge and you can yeah. pay and uh, you'll get your licensed access to their mm. magical framework which is going to change everything and I just really don't believe it I don't believe that um, that we're sufficiently discerning to be able to produce abstractions to be able to distinguish between abstractions that are high high value and low value like that's mm. the thing that's, that I'm really noticing at the moment, especially around game B. Mm. Um, and maybe it's the same in, meta, in the meta-modern conversations, but I've been tuned out of them. But in game B, it's really striking me that, um, how do I explain it? It's like, it's one thing to um, be good at explaining things, you know, like to be able to tell a story, to, to, to create a framework or a model or a metaphor and say like, this connects to this, this, this. And then, and then the audience says, wow, that's really great. I get it now. Yeah, that's one skill. And there's another skill, which is actually to be able to practice. You know, there's like, mm. there's um, the skill of talking about football. And then there's the skill of playing football. Of, of being in the field, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, there's, yeah. and it's really hard to tell, like when we're engaging, especially when we're engaging just through text, you know, like mm. emails and Facebook and stuff. Um, it's really hard to distinguish who's a good player from who's a good talker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's going to be an issue, I think, is... Um, I guess you'd call it like, how do you credential leadership? You know, what, what is, what is that? Um, yeah. The quality to, to say like, this person is really worth listening to. Um, mm. Like, and even not just worth listening to, but um, who, 
who has enough experience that I would even override my own intuition because they said, you know, you should take option B instead of option A. Mm. And um, there's going to be times where you need to do that. And, um, and I really believe in, in a kind of lineage to solve that challenge, you know, like to have, have a sense of who your elders are and that when you get into a really difficult dilemma, you can go to your elders and say, hey, how would you respond in this? Um, mm. And I think those elders are, are hard to find. Mm. I, I think that's also the reason why I'm really, and again, also from, from my point of view of design, I'm really, I, I, I'm not wondering to, or I'm not looking to build uh, like the final model or the final uh, Bible of, of, you know, how this could be doing better. But I'm really looking forward to do stuff here in Barcelona. So like to build something, um, that can really engage with real life uh, experience, uh, lived experience of what this is uh, in real life somehow. So that, that, that's why I, I'm all the time, because I, I'm not, somehow I'm attracted to theory, but I'm all trying to avoid it in, in the sense of, I, I'm all the time trying to, okay, like, let's come back to think as a designer and build something, uh, prototype something and have this experience of, really applying this uh, in your daily life somehow. So yeah, I, I'm, yeah I'm, I'm also with this internal battle of, of, uh, of being engaged also with the practice, I guess. There's, a, there's another piece as well, which is, um, a, it's, it's like you've got the practice uh, and there's one part, I don't know, I don't have the language for this either, but um, there's one part of the practice which is, the thing that you can write down and put on paper and send to the other side of the world that says, you know, um, this is an active listening process and the first person speaks for five minutes and then the second person listens and they reflect back what they heard. And, you know, you have these instructions, a recipe. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is some, um, uh, you could call it like the spirit that animates that recipe, you know, like that, that some people, some uh, very highly experienced practitioner will have a methodology they use and they'll know and they can tell you it's one, you step one, two, three, four, five. But what they don't know is that they've got all of this tacit knowledge that they've embodied yeah. about like, when this circumstance arises, the yeah. way that I'd actually respond is like that. And I would bend the rules in this way and all those sorts of things are really hard to um, articulate. And so mm. I wonder what's going to happen with people copying the recipe perfectly, mm. but misunderstanding the core intention or some of the, um, some of that tacit knowledge just not being passed along. Mm. Uh, I don't know what kind of weird, distorted Frankenstein social mm. processes we're going to see because of that. So that'll be one yeah. to pay attention to. Yeah, that, that, that's why I, I was also really interested in to, not too much on the tools, but also on the, how do you engage with tools somehow? Mm. So uh, I've been reading a lot like these months, um, these past months, uh, Heidegger, uh, which, yeah. I, which I find really inspiring sometimes uh, to understand because um, we are all, uh, there's full of hammers out there and we, then you end up uh, first believing that uh, everything is a nail and then maybe you end up, yeah, using, so losing somehow the embodied knowledge that the, losing or not, not, not ever uh, reaching the knowledge of the, of the carpenter that knows how to really engage in which, in, in which situations and, and, you know, with, yeah, with, with you can also only access those in practice somehow. So yeah, organizing my, my thoughts, I was thinking that the only way of uh, assessing or being sure that those people are using 
those patterns in a profound way is that they have to engage with practice and they they will end up somehow building that um, yeah. that yeah because tools give somehow a sufficiency um, feeling you know like okay I have, I have got a tool for that let's use it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and it's a risk for me you know like working in the groups that I'm working in now where I'm I'm what the group needs is for me to be local and responsive and to say like show up as myself with my embodied intelligence in this present moment mm. but there's a part of me that wants to go like ha ah, but i'm working in these four groups at once and what's the patterns between them and can i extract something abstract and so like instead of just responding with what the group needs i'm responding with what i think would be the nicest tool or what would be the nicest recipe um and i've got to continuously undermine that tendency in myself and 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 stick to the first principle which is like if in doubt you know trust yourself trust your guts trust your mm. eyes trust the the your feet on the soil and the place that you are with the people that you are with mm. you know so for instance we were just about um i've gone through this long deliberative process we're just about to put forward a proposal in one of my mutual aid networks with a mm. whole set of structural agreements like this is how we're going to organize for the next couple of years and because like this was supposed to happen about this time last week that we're going to launch this proposal and um because of the virus and people being distracted we said you know what we should leave this i mean we put a lot of work but we should just put it aside for now because we need to respond to the moment that we're in instead of our mm -hmm. abstract ideas about the moment we actually just have to respond and like what responding mm -hmm. to this moment means is being emotionally available and attentive and responsive to each other it doesn't mean having this big theoretical debate about mm. our structure, you know, like that's not what mm. we need right now. And mm. um, it's a really, this at least as important that skill as the, as the abstract, you know, the structural one is, mm. is to be relationally aware and present. Mm. Okay, Richard, I just wanted to like point out that it's already two o'clock. So I, I, I think that we had one hour for the, for the talk, just for, you know, for being aware of that. So yeah, um, yeah. It's you know I, I could be speaking about this <laughs> the whole the whole day, but um, yeah, I'm sure you have many things to uh, to do. I do, uh, um, but I would like to talk again sometime. I okay. really I really feel like we're um, we're just getting started on something. It's really fascinating the way that you have articulated all this and, and brought it together. It's very inspiring to me. So I'd like to. I feel like if we had more conversations. Yeah, I, I I would love it. I would love it definitely. Yeah, yeah. When uh, I think it would be really nice. To meet again, maybe when I can tell you anything about, you know, what happened with the prototypes and what happened with, with when I was engaged uh, in the floor, in the field, uh, with the ball playing soccer. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Um, so what yeah, I, what, one thing I'd really love, and if, you know, if you want to, if it fits, um, is in the Microsolidarity Lumio group, my one mm. vision I have is that there's just lots of people like you who are just using that place as a diary to, to log their own experiments and say like, okay. we're doing this community, we brought these deliberations forward, this is the model that just like, just periodically, you know, if you want, we could put that video there if you felt comfortable with that. Oh yeah, perfect. Yeah, it would be perfect. Uh, just to have uh, people documenting in parallel and then being able to, okay. you know, tune okay. in with each other and say, oh, what did you learn there? My, my, my only insecurity is my, my poor English, but uh, I hope, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I hope anyone can understand my, Spanish kind of um, shitty English. <laughs> I understood you, I think, very well. Okay, it's really good English. So, yeah, I, I wanted just to ask you 
one more thing. Uh, well, first, I, I, I will, well, I don't know if it will happen or not, but um, I just bought the tickets for the Totnes Convergence. I, I think you will be there, right? Yeah, well. <laughs> if it happens, if it happens uh, physically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's, that's one thing. And the other thing that uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you is uh, if you ever come to mind to someone that I should definitely speak to, something like that. Uh, I'm really very much into like uh, personal recommendations on, mm. on people to be engaged with. So if you ever come or to someone that really can help us, uh, yeah, speak to the other somehow. So someone that maybe would like to speak to me or the other way, way around, someone that I would be interested to, to speak to, uh, I would be really pleased and happy if you, if you could lose this kind of connection. So. I, I love playing that game. That's one of my favorite okay. things to do. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Richard. It was really a pleasure. And yeah, it was really nice also to engage with you, uh, seeing your face and not only in the social network game, which, which I am not really good at neither. So thank you very much for, for yeah, allocating this space to, to see each other. This is my pleasure. I feel very uh, happy and stimulated to meet you and I look forward to our next conversation. Okay. Thank you very much, Richard. Take care and, well, let's see how this, this goes, this coronavirus kind of thing. Fine. <laughs> <It's> fine. <laughs> okay. Thank Ciao. You very much.